if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Welcome back to a state sale. I'm Lori Lattimore Volkman. Thanks for tuning in to the much anticipated second part of our series, Being Black in America. Based on a conversation with two of my former students at Mercer University, Jamila Frazier, a prosecutor in Atlanta, and Foley Texan, a tech writer at Google, also based in Atlanta. And it has been so long since we recorded and published the first part in the series, based on our five hour conversation, that in the meantime, Jamila has announced she is pregnant with baby number three, and Foley has popped the question to his beautiful bride. So before Jamila's baby is born and Foley ties the knot, let's get back into our discussion about what it's like to grow up black in America. Spoiler alert, it ain't easy. As I was editing this, it struck me again how different the growing up experience is for black people, especially young black people. Whether it's navigating predominantly white schools and churches and clubs, whether it's having black history completely skipped over in your curriculum, or whether it's having an entire country watch innocent black people after innocent black people get shot and killed and not be able to convince police departments and town councils and state legislatures and elected leaders or even voters to give a damn about it. So I hope that strikes you too, because the only way we begin to fix our systemic racism, the only way we reverse our ignorance is by imagining ourselves in the same situation, but as the minority, as the person considered lesser merely because of skin color, as the person screaming for change behind what feel like soundproof walls. Side note, you will not hear us talk about or even mention critical race theory because this conversation took place in March, long before a bunch of racist Republican leaders were suddenly concerned about banning a theory, I guarantee they neither understand nor likely even know the actual definition for. But I also guarantee that Jamila Foley and I will be having that conversation on this podcast in the future. Was it your parents or was it a sibling or was it a friend at school that told you about racism? Or did you just start noticing it as you grew up. I read a book called Freedom's Children. One of the stories in there was about Claudette Colvin. I read this book in elementary school and she was the person who sat on the bus and refused to give up her seat before Rosa Parks. I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. That's one of my favorite books to this day. And so I felt like books taught me. And then I would ask my parents. They didn't necessarily try to shield me from it, but it wasn't necessarily like at that time, like, okay, this is what you expect to happen. But because I read so much, I just think I was very aware. I was born in 82, 20 years earlier. (laughs) The civil rights movement was really going strong. MLK and Malcolm X were killed. So it never seemed that far removed to me. It still doesn't seem that far removed to me. Right. You know, they asked my dad to integrate when he was in high school here in Atlanta. So like, I've just always, I just feel like because of my wanting to read and reading so much new, I don't feel like anybody ever kind of Set you down and lay up the land, yeah. Like I said, because of my size, my skin tone, I got the lay of the land early. You are going to be a big, dark-skinned male in America. We need you to listen and take notes. Grab a pen. Sit down. Because of that, I was always aware. 
And I picked up even slights that people may have felt like they weren't being rude or disrespectful or openly racist, but, you know, there were still the microaggressions, as we call them now. I picked those up uh, growing up a lot. It takes me a while to let my guard down and let you in and know that you're actually all right. Sometimes a guard may come down a little bit earlier because you've gotten the uh, pre-screen or gotten the okay from others. (laughs) And sometimes it may be, (laughs) hey... We don't have to screen this one again. Well, I think you make an interesting point. So my husband is dark skinned. And so he doesn't worry because, or I don't think he worries as much as I worry about him when he goes out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's crazy because his personality is so nice. Every time he gets pulled over, he gets a warning. I have always gotten a citation. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. (laughs) As my attitude is just not right. Roll my eyes one too many times. (laughs) I worry about him because I'm like, you know, he used to play football. And so I'm just like, okay, people see a big dark skinned black person versus somebody like a me who I know that they're like, because I'm lighter skinned, I think that, you know, I get a pass that he may not get. But in reality, I'm the more dangerous one in the sense that he is a much calmer person. Like, right, right. Oh, you know, let it go. And I'm the one who is more feisty. And I bring that up because, you know, if I were to have a little boy, I would be telling him from like probably the age of three, you can't act like this. I mean, similar to what I tell my daughter, like I tell her all the time, you have to be twice as good. Mm -hmm. Like, I know you have the great grace, but you have to be twice as good to get as far you don't have the privilege. And so I think that that conversation would kind of be the same, but to my little boy, you can't be aggressive. So when you go to the store, like make sure you're with me or make sure you're with your dad. Don't ride with your music too loud when you're driving down certain streets. Um, But all the conversations that I think as parents, we have with our kids because we want to see them succeed. And even though my daughter is not dark skinned, I mean, you look at her and you know that she's black. And so as people are going to automatically judge you out that they're not going to know that you got a 34 on the ACT. They're not going to know that you're a 4.0 student and they're not going to, they're not necessarily going to take the time to find out. As I was probably alluding to also with your husband being very mild tempered, he probably learned to do that because of his size, because of his skin tone. I learned how to do that in corporate America. Because it, you know me from college. I didn't care. I said, well, I, I let, you know, I put it out there. Hey, listen, if this is how I felt, this is how you're going to get it. Actually, with an advisor at Mercer who had to sit me down and tell me, uh, older white advisor had to sit down and tell me, hey, listen, I don't mind your spirited aggression in this classroom because you give me a lot to think about and you also give me a lot to debate and you also come in sometimes prepared not all the time but anyway (laughs) (laughs) however going into corporate america i wanted to grow my hair out i wanted to grow dreads i wanted to and being in the field that i'm in at the time that i was coming out of college that was taboo you know, I, I need to have my hair cut. I need to be clean shaven. I need to, you know, uh, speak clearly. I need to be very mild tempered. This is where the whole idea of always throwing jokes out there, because like I said, if if I don't throw the jokes out there, I will be mad. 
I will be angry all the time. I'll always have a scowl on my face. And six foot two black man with a scowl on his face, a dark skinned black man with a scowl on his face is intimidating. Having that awareness of who you are starts early. Unfortunately, because of racism, I can tell you that most of my black male friends will say that we noticed it or we were awakened to it in middle school, junior high. And I can say that most of my young black friends, most of my young black male friends were open to it around the age of 10 to 12 years old, because that's when the age you go from, you're no longer yeah. the cute little boy, but you're becoming a black man now. I mean, I think we've just got to the point, even though I don't even think we're fully there, that like we can wear our hair or like how it grows out of our head or like you can get dreads and potentially still be hired. And I mean, and I say potentially because I just think that now they can't say it out loud. So I still don't know that if you came in with dreads or I came in with my natural hair, if that might not still give somebody pause. So then we find another way to kind of screen you out. Right. Something I pointed out to Jamila and Foley in our conversation surrounding the teaching of Black history, which is really to say the non-teaching of Black history in our American curriculum, is that as a white person who reads a ton of news, my perception this past year was that because of the Black Lives Matter protest in the spring and summer of 2020, the media and even ultimately our colleges and schools seem to become much more aware of the need to more comprehensively educate ourselves and our kids on black history and to understand that black history is American history, not just a couple of lessons on Martin Luther King during February or a list of prominent black civil rights leaders when we get to the 60s in history class. Whether that hyper awareness this year leads to better education is yet to be seen, but perhaps the new federal holiday for Juneteenth is proof that strides can be made. So this conversation about black history is very apropos as white America must be confronted with what has been lacking in our understanding of how this nation was built upon slavery, how it fought over slavery, and how it continues to divide over the same prejudices that allowed slavery. Black comedian had done this reenacting what Black History Month was like when you're in school. And the teacher's like, okay, Black History Month. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Martin Luther King had a dream. And now let's move on to Anne Frank. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> I've noticed this year, it seems like there's been a little bit better kind of treatment during the month of just talking about the issue because of the Black Lives Matter uh, protest that we had all summer. But I'm curious for you, when you were growing up in particular, like middle school, high school, you even like remember Black History Month because there was something specific done, assuming that it probably was pretty insufficient. How you learned about a lot of Black leaders who are not just the typical ones, the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm Xs. And, you know, people are just artists and painters and writers and not like our political activists and songwriters. I didn't learn anything like that. And so knowing that it's not really in the schools and the curriculum is handed down from the state, it's pretty pathetic, it's pretty white-centric, and it's pretty embarrassing. If you do know the history, you'd be like, no. I really don't remember Black history from the time I was in California, I'll be honest with you. And my mother was like, um, first of all, Black people that are here in this country they didn't just come over to get like, you know, some turkey and some sandwiches. Funsies? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right, right. They didn't actually want to come here. 
You know, it wasn't like, hey, you know, they got funnel cake over there. Let's go check that out. <laughs> then all of a sudden, slavery. No, it, it didn't happen like that. I remember working with a guy. It took an HBO series, Watchmen. It took that because it's based on a comic book and the guy is into comic books for him to believe that the Tulsa, Oklahoma City bombing actually happened. Uh, that Black Wall Street was bombed. Actually rooted in history. And that's what's really scary. <laughs> like that's Yeah. That my dad is actually an economics professor from a retired economics professor from uh, University of San Francisco. He used to have this poster in the house of African kings. I used to always ask about them. That got me reading early and learning about Mansa Musa, the royalty of, you know, of Africa. When I went to school and I started hearing like history and African American history and African history, I was just like, well, are we starting off with slavery. Like, bro, like, oh, like, why are we starting here? Like, you know, we we missed a lot beforehand. Like, well, can we talk about that? Man, man, we just jumped straight into slavery and then, you know, getting whopped upside the head. Then, okay, get voting rights. And, you know, now, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and Martin King had a dream. And now we're all good and gravy and Cosby's are, you know, on TV. Like, that, right. that's it. Look, I would always ask, what about this person? What about that? Well, how did this happen? Why are we not covering this? And I would ask a lot of questions that would get me in trouble. <laughs> and it was always seen as me being disruptive or, you know, not, not respecting authority when it was not that. It was just like, I wanted you to tell the whole story. He was one of the very few people that admitted like, man, listen, um, if you have some books, Bring them to class. I, I like to read them. I like to have them. And I was just like, bro, you're the teacher. What the WTF? That was my introduction to black history. And like, that's how I learned it growing up is that I learned what the school taught me. And then I would go home, talk about it with my parents, my dad, especially if I talked to him on the phone, he would be like, oh, no, this is all wrong. The curriculum uh, for black history leaves a very, leaves a whole lot to be desired. When I started, I started at a black private school. And so Black History Month was a big deal. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. we were celebrating all the teachers were black. Um, so we're celebrating black history. I mean, it was like black history every day, but you know, there was a special emphasis on black right. history. Right. When I got to my white schools, I don't remember anything. But like <laughs> Foley said, I read a lot. It's funny when we started going to my church, it was all white. And eventually all the white folks left and it turned all black. Like when it was black, we were doing stuff. And so there were things that stuck with me as a child, like the four little girls at the bombing right. um, in Birmingham, like stuff like that, which was never discussed in my school, made me want to read more. My knowledge about some of the lesser known people was always through reading, always wanting to gather more information and always reading something that I felt like touched me to this day, I think it was the story of the four little girls and like how they just never, ever <laughs> received justice. And so as a young child, it was mind boggling to me that like somebody could hate people so much for the color of their skin that they would choose to bomb their place of worship and that four children lost their lives. Do you remember them ever doing anything? Like that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, he, said, he said Martin Luther King. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't remember anything. Not to cut you off, Jamila, but Martin Luther King is always like the... He's their safe choice. But the thing about Martin Luther King, though, for me, because they want to use a softer K 
character, but to mm -hmm. me, he really wasn't that soft. He moved so many people, some really bloody Sunday and some like so many big things yeah. that because he was putting it in this nice package of, hey, we're going to be nonviolent, blah, blah, blah. People like to, to propel him forward. But understand, even though he was preaching nonviolence, he was still getting his point across and he was still gathering people and motivating people to work with him in that effort. For most white people, he's the good kind of black. But guess what? They still killed him. So <laughs> it really doesn't matter what kind of black you are. Um, if you're trying to effectuate any kind of change, you're dangerous. It's still like the whitewashing of history. Um, I know like a lot of white people really want us to like love and embrace Abraham Lincoln because, you know, he was the best thing ever because he freed the slaves. History has been spoon fed to us in a way that makes white people not look as bad, which I mean, I know, and I, I very much appreciate that people are a product of their times. So I do understand that like, you know, back in the 60s, back in earlier times that yes, racism was wrong then, but you know, they were a product of their time, cool. But don't pee on me and tell me it's raining. Like it's okay to say, <laughs> this is what happened and this is the truth and how it happened. Like I don't need the whitewashed version of it to, to, to make it go down easier. It points to what you both brought up before, the whole white savior narrative that, that gets portrayed a whole lot. As you mentioned fully, it's not like black history starts with slavery, but but even when we start there, we never talk about the the slaves and the and the free men and women who did so much to risk their lives. Harriet Tubman is like the only one we ever talk about. Paul's version of Harriet Tubman is like, oh, you know, she freed the slaves. Yeah, and she would have killed any white man that tried to stop her. Like it's not like she was just like, hey slaves. We're going to go take a nice look. Like, this was a very strong, capable woman who was willing to take people out the game if they tried to stop her from accomplishing her goal. <laughs> that brings me to that movie that was recently filmed. And it also brings me to the uh, fact of a lot of movies and the way, and once again, the way we talk about Black history of how in these movies, there's always a white savior. There's always a lessening of the impact of what that person did. And there's always a justification for why white people did what they did. No, we don't need justification. We don't need reasoning. We just need stone cold facts. I just learned this Sojourner's Truth famous speech that was like whitewashed and changed to make her sound like more like what they thought a black woman should sound like. It just goes to show you that for whatever reason through history, they would not let us be ourselves. To a large extent, the black people that I know, my friends and family, we're just out here trying to live. I mean, we're just out here trying to live, take care of our families, have a good life, and that's it. Now, you know, that, that's all we're trying to do. The problem is, is that our living is seen as an action <laughs> against white people. Like it's seen as some kind of like rebuke. I remember when we were growing up, like my family, Eric's family, my husband's family, middle-class black people. And I felt like the fact that we were there and that our parents had the audacity to be middle-class was an issue for some of the poorer white people. Eric tells the story again, much, he was much nicer than I was. I think he was in the eighth grade and somebody threw a football and he jumped up and caught it. And 
some like two redneck white boys were like, wow, that N-word can jump. I would have been kicked out of school that day. <laughs> that he was just so caught off guard. But it's just like, how dare you? We are out here living our lives at this school because our parents want to put us in a good school system. He can't do so much as living his life and catch a football without you having an issue with it. And I mean, like, that's just one example of what I feel like is like almost every day in the life of life of being somebody being black. And I will like kind of piggyback on that and say that growing up, most of my issues with white people were actually with white people who were on my same economic status. So I moved to Georgia as in the eighth, ninth grade and went to a 98% black high school. I grew up in the Episcopal church when I was at church on Sundays with this youth group that outside of my family, everybody else there was white and I'd never had to dumb myself down because honestly they could have looked at us like okay well you know this we're being charitable to the poor african family <laughs> but <laughs> i mean they could have yeah. they could have and i felt like part of that is you know the fact that they were a most of the people in the church were a well well to do middle class and above so they had the education to at least say, well, let me learn some more or let me appreciate the diversity that is there. Even if it's nothing more than, oh, I'm going to taste some of this spicy new food that they're making. <laughs> and that makes sense. The stereotypical member of KKK or MAGA or Proud Boys or whatever is a lower income white male, female. Mm -hmm. There's research that shows this. That group feels the most threatened by people of color being smarter than they are, making more money than they do, living up what they you know, would see as a better life. So it's the typical bully, you put other people down that, you know, that you're jealous of or that you're concerned about as a way to prop yourself up. But we see it on this you know, mass scale racist ideology. You knew it was coming. Eventually our conversation had to evolve to stories from our days together at Mercer University. Once affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, yes, that racist Baptist Convention, Mercer is a private university of nearly 5,000 students boasting a medical school and law school in addition to its liberal arts foundation. It's a very good school and both Jamila and Foley enjoyed their time there and feel they got a good education. But both also felt at times isolated and like outsiders as they navigated a predominantly white environment. I don't know if I ever even shared this with you, but I think you will find it interesting because it's correlated right to my time on the cluster. Yeah. So, you know, Foley had his angry black man column. I had my all eyes on me, right. named after Tupac, um, my column. And I wrote a, a, um, a column on the Confederate flag. I don't know if I ever told you that somebody went and put a Confederate flag on my door after that. Oh, I, I don't know if I ever did. No, you did. You should have. No, we like should have done a story <laughs> on that. You should have, hey, you definitely should have said something about that. Like, yeah. um, I mean, I think I was just so, and it wasn't like a huge one, but it was like a printed out, like just like put on my door. Um, right. And it is crazy because up until that point, like we were just, I mean, maybe I think me and Foley were like, like, I'm just going, 
I'm, this is my column I'm writing about. And you gave us free license. So I'm like, I'm writing about yeah. whatever I want to write about. Right. Nobody's bothering me. The black folks like it. Go keep it. Right. And then I yeah. called to my door one day, like I was just, you know, like, well, like shocked that somebody was that bold. I mean, of course, looking back on it, it's not bold to put something on my door when you know I'm not there. Right. But just that like. But it's, did you think. feel, were you, did you just feel like shocked and angry or were, did you feel intimidated at all or worried that, you know, you better not walk around the corner by yourself? I mean, you? just shocked and angry. I guess, I just, I guess I think at that point, like I realized that most racists are not stupid enough to be aggressively racist in my face. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, you know. And I know that there are some that are, but like at that point in my life, I had never come across that. And I felt pretty much at Mercer, like y'all are punks. Like, I mean, if you know enough to know where I live, you know enough to have come up to me and said something. Right. And so like I obviously waited for a time to, to put it on my door when I wasn't around. So I feel like my thoughts on people being in my circle, especially white people, started to shift when I was at Mercer (laughs) like I felt like it just became much much more obvious to me to me Mercer was a very segregated campus we were not (laughs) doing what the brochure was like the white girl the black guy the Asian guy and the Hispanic girl I was like seriously (laughs) can we be more obvious that we're trying to look like this is how everybody is no not that at all I actually had a little bit of a conversation with one of the black guys that was in the picture. I just asked him, like, are you comfortable with this, man? Are you, do you not feel exploited that sometimes? Like, Have either of y'all ever watched Scrubs? An episode where Donald Faison, um, he appeared two times in his college brochure because he was like the only black guy that they would use. So it's like one brochure and they tried to make it like, they tried to make him. And that kind of reminds me of like Mercer and places like that. Okay, so we have our good black, and let's make sure that we, you know, we broadcast them so that when somebody's looking for diversity, that person is there. And so right. we are talking about it, it just made it, it was just funny to me because I just remember that episode. <laughs> I mean, twice, like, like, you know, they're trying to pass me off as more than one black person. <laughs> but right, right. <laughs> we have a lot I mean, of black people. Laugh at that because, like I said, it's like, well, yeah, we're going to. Put him on, you know, we're going to put him on the front of the cover in a red shirt and put him on the back of the cover in a blue shirt. Like, man, that's the same. (laughs) I might say hey to a couple of people in my classes or whatever, but like when I'm going to a Mercer football game and basketball game, I'm with other black kids. When we are hanging out in the quad, it's a group of black folks. You feel like you segregated yourself because this was just much more comfortable and you didn't feel like like white students were really all that understanding and open or they didn't want it like that you know i wrote an article i don't know if you remember on rush one of my friends who was um in a sorority so she was probably one or two of white people i would say i was friends with or friendly with and she was like you know when black girls come to this we're always looking at them like why don't you want to pledge a black sorority? Like, why are you really here? (laughs) And so I'm like, I mean, for me, I was just doing an article. What if I'm genuinely interested in being a Kai Omega or if I'm you? You are saying that because I am black that y'all don't trust that I might just want to be a part of your sorority. And so I never felt like 
there was a group of white students who was like, hey, black girl, come hang with us. Like it was never, it was yeah. never like. There was a small pocket of black people that were um, crossover friendly. Let me just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know what I'm saying? But like they, they were accepted and they were cool with us. And, yeah. You know, in black black student population, but they were crossover friendly to the the white students as well. Um, but I feel like I we always friendly. look out for our own. To just not to interrupt you, but to your point, like yeah. if you're going to be friends, like if there's a black person, because I feel like whenever I go places, you get the habit of looking out for the black looking for the black person in the room, because you feel like that's your safe your safe spot. So yeah. even those crossovers, mm-hmm. we were always going to be their safe spot. <laughs> like if something jumped off. Like, and I was there, and you're a black person. I don't care who you hang with. Like, we're together in this. Right, so, right. Just to your point, even though they were crossovers, they always had, for lack of a better term, a home with us. Because I just feel like that's what yeah. black people are taught to do. Yeah, yeah. And well, probably a necessity a little bit, right? Like, it, it's yeah. not just to, it's to truly protect and not just to be supportive right. or inclusive. Right. Yeah. For me, in my experience, working on an engineering technical degree, being in classrooms where you might be the only black male in the class and one of black three of one of three black people in the class. Personally, I accepted that challenge because I wanted to know what it was going to be like going into corporate America because I came from a majority black school. I wanted to make sure that I was prepared for corporate America prepared for all the foolishness that would happen, all the microaggressions that would happen. So Mercer gave me a lot of field practice. <laughs> you know, college is this supposed melting pot, right? Pot. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of happens, but it does not happen organically. It leads to our systemic racism, honestly. And I haven't read it yet, but I bought it for my daughter. But like, why are all the black kids sitting in the, sitting together in the cafeteria? That book. But I think you're right. It just, it goes back for me, at least to where I feel my comfort zone is. And And your safety, right? Right. And when I go into places where I'm a minority, I'm like I said, I'm always looking around for the other black folks, because if something pops off, if the KKK runs through here, who's with me? (laughs) Like who, who are, who's fighting with me? So I think when I go into a class, because not in your class, and I mean that genuinely, but like, you really never know what you're going to get from, in my opinion, some, some professors, like you might be sitting in class, um, maybe you're reading Huckleberry Finn. And so everybody's going to take the, the time yeah. to like say the N word because, you know, that's apparently fun or whatever. You just, you never know what you're walking into. Jamila spoke on her uh, writing experiences and some of the things that she wrote. And I clearly remember that um, column I wrote with the, what was it? The Student Body Association? The organization that put on all the student activities. Oh, it's, it changed to Quad Works, but I can't remember what it was at the beginning. Quad Works! Oh my gosh, I totally forgot that name. They did a hayride. Myself and two uh, Muslim students walking out, and we're like, well, shoot, man, let's go grab something to eat, man. We've been in this lab forever. They, they got free food on the quad, doing whatever. Let's go out there. We go out there. Pork. They had no other options. It was... Pork is as far as I can see. And I looked at them because I'm like, I know they're disappointed and shit. (laughs) (laughs) So that event caused me to write this article. 
And I think that was like the birth of the angry black man. Cause I just went off and like, right. I wrote this column about that. And I clearly remember, and I had to speak to the Dean of students at the time. And I remember you coming to me and saying, Hey, well, I think you're gonna have to talk to this guy, whatever you, you kind of pissed off somebody. And I was like, Oh, well, shoot. Okay. Let's go for it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I remember meeting him and he was so surprised that the nice, quiet, affable, you know, guy who comes and drops off the mail in the morning. It doesn't say anything. I just come in there with my blue jacket. I'm, you know, student worker. Hey, how you doing? Boom, boom, grab the stuff and then move on. He was surprised that it was me that wrote it. And I remember meeting with other students on the student activities board about that. And she was just like, well, um, we didn't mean, I said, well, it wasn't about your meaning. It's the fact that you didn't even try, that you didn't ask. You have a, a population here that doesn't eat pork. All you serve was pork. Are you serious? And there was no other food alternative. The cafeteria was closed. They had served just that. And it was just like, oh, well, we tried. This is the same attitude that you're recruiting Black people, Black students, other minorities with and saying, hey, come to our school. But then we get here and you're not really being inclusive. That was the light bulb that kind of I was already if you consider it pretty militant, but yeah, militant, how I felt about what was going on on campus. But that really kind of set me off to make sure that, hey, everybody's included. Let's really address these needs here. Not let's just say it, not let's just put it on a brochure. As a matter of fact, and we have, you know, there's more than one black guy, you know, on campus. Don't change your shirt. Just go ahead and put the other black guy on the back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at some point I feel like early on I just got tired <laughs> like I don't want to have to explain myself I don't want to have to mute my blackness to be to be around you and so not like that anybody at Mercer was so overt or aggressive enough to tell me you're too black to hang around me but I just felt like it was unspoken like at some point I get tired of explaining to white people like what the issue is, why this is racist. Like I get like do 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 the work. Um, I, don't, I really don't have any problem answering any questions or like doing things like this. I mean, I think it's helpful and I like it, but at some point, it's just kind of like you or whoever I'm talking. You've been in this world as long as I have. I get that you have this privilege, but that does not mean that you don't see like what black people are going through. That doesn't mean that you did not see what um, happened to George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery and you were not able to kind of imagine what it would feel like after seeing that to be a black person in this country. I just got tired. <laughs> like, I don't wanna have to explain myself. I don't want to have to or mute my blackness to be, to be around you. If you are a racist and you're just gonna be, then I know how to deal with you. Right. It's the people who masquerade as allies or think that they're not racist that, you know, they end up doing something and you're like, whoa, whoa, that caught me off guard. As I explained to several people, and I've said plenty of times, you can use the N-word. However, you have to understand there are consequences and repercussions to every action. Do what you want to do. But like Jamila said, I prefer my racism out front early so I know how to handle you. Growing up, that's how... I know how to deal with you. Right. And so it's not great, 
But then I just know that we don't need to be near each other. We don't need to, you know, I expect you to do what racists do. I like Donald Trump. If he came out and started calling people the N-word, I'd be like, well, you know. I was just waiting for the press conference where he just dropped a couple of N-bombs. I was too. <laughs> I was just like, I'm waiting for him to just drop it one or two times and be and just put it out there. Let's just rip this Band-Aid off and get it out there. Let's go. I know. I was shocked that in four years, we never heard him say the N-word at a press. I like, I couldn't believe he could hold back because you know he said it all the time. <laughs> all the time in his I mean, head. All the time in his head. Thank you again for joining us, joining me in this conversation and this journey with Jamila and Foley. And a very heartfelt thanks to both of them for their open and honest reflections on how their experience being Black in America, even in some very good circumstances, has had struggles that white Americans will never have. And until we understand that and actively do something to change it, the inequality and injustice will continue. Thank you, you for know. having me. I enjoyed it. So, you know, if you ever want to talk again about something. Oh, else, yeah. Well, are you kidding? After five hours, I think clearly we're going to have to continue this again. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, definitely, I definitely would like to do this again. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.